This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Non-invasive ventilation key concepts by Dr. Robert Graham. Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Graham. I'm an associate in the Division of Critical Care Medicine with the Department of Anesthesia at Children's Hospital Boston. Today, I'm going to talk to you about non-invasive ventilator support. This is going to be a conceptual approach to non-invasive ventilator support. So today, my objectives are to review the basic concepts of non-invasive ventilator support. I'm going to discuss some of the indications and recommendations for its implementation. Um, again, uh, I would refer you to PubMed and other uh, literature searches um, if you want some additional details, and we are always available uh, here at Children's for uh, additional uh, uh, reference. Basic concepts. So you'll hear many basic terms, um, and I think it's helpful to put us all on a common ground. You will hear concepts such as uh, NIV, non-invasive ventilation, NIPPV, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, IPAP, inspiratory positive airway pressure, CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, or BiPAP, biphasic positive airway pressure. There are many other terms that you may hear as well, and it's helpful when you're uh, doing an online search or looking in the literature um, to, to look at these different uh, terms uh, to find exactly what you're looking for. And also when communicating with colleagues who uh, may not be uh, with you at your institution um, to make sure that you're you know, referring to the same uh, basic concept. I do like uh, to boil it down to really the two essential uh, modes of, of non-invasive ventilation, and that is CPAP and BiPAP, continuous positive airway pressure and biphasic positive airway pressure. I actually like to use an automobile or a motorcycle analogy um, where you consider CPAP is a continuous flow of air, uh, non-varying, and imagine yourself either in a car or on a motorcycle going 50 miles an hour, and all of the flow of air is funneling into your airway. It's continuous, you're not changing speeds, and you can add oxygen or not, but it's essentially at baseline a continuous flow of room air. BiPAP or biphasic airway pressure um, is taking that continuous flow and then going up to another speed. So in your car or on your motorcycle, you're escalating from 50 to 100 or 150 miles an hour. And again, that change in flow is then transmitted to your airway. While my focus today is principally on respiratory status, I do want to um, suggest that you consider the cardiopulmonary interactions. Anything that we do to alter intrathoracic pressure has an effect on the heart. Um, this can be good and it can also have detrimental effects depending on how this is implemented and what the cardiac status is. Um, you can think of uh, help for the right ventricle um, through pulmonary vascular, uh, you know, assistance of pulmonary vascular resistance through recruitment of the lung and decreasing of VQ mismatching. Um, you can look at the impact on venous return to the right side of the heart and that increasing intrathoracic pressure 
does have implications for the venous return and subsequently cardiac output. Um, for um, left ventricular interactions, changes in the transthoracic uh, pressures and the uh, pleural forces and the effect on the free wall of the left ventricle are not insignificant. Um, again, we won't focus on that today, but it's definitely a consideration in some of your patients who may have ischemic heart disease, uh, patients who have myocarditis, um, or patients with underlying cardiomyopathies, such as muscular dystrophy or other, uh, other etiologies. So, um, I would again refer you to um, additional uh, cardiac uh, physiology and the considerations for positive pressure and implementation. That is essentially the, the basics of non-invasive and the basic terminology. Now the question is, what are the applications and when do we want to use it? So the indications essentially are hypercapnia, so high CO2, ventil ventilatory failure, um, or hypoxemia. Um, obviously low oxygenation, and uh, they often coincide, but not entirely. And you do want to choose your you know, CPAP or BiPAP depending upon the, um, the underlying process. There is a basic concept that underlies all of this in that oxygen by itself may not be enough support, and in fact may actually be detrimental at times depending on the pathophysiology um, of the process going on. Um, you would worry in some patients who have airway collapse that oxygen by itself may pr promote nitrogen washout and you may get more subsegmental atelectasis, children with neuromuscular disease for instance, and that positive pressure in fact actually will open their airways and perhaps allow you to decrease the amount of oxygen. Um, I'll allude to this a little bit further on as we talk about other indications. Indications, pulmonary shunt. So we'll break these down individually. So pulmonary shunt, this can be anything acute. Uh, someone with parenchymal lung disease, um, acute pneumonia, traumatic lung injury, um, inhalational injuries, anything that's going to um, cause um, you know, inflammation in the lungs or a, a pulmonary shunt. Um, now that, uh, again, the idea behind is that you're giving oxygen, but that may not be enough that you may need to apply positive pressure and non-invasive ventilation is an adjuvant or a step between simply oxygen or endotracheal intubation or transtracheal airway. Non-invasive ventilation, in fact, can be applied to anything that is applied through a ventilator but with a non-invasive interface. Um, we would consider use of this for anyone who's escalating on their degree of support and you don't necessarily have the resources to place an endotracheal tube or the sedation and medications and other things that go along with that. Uh, pulmonary edema is a consideration. When you think about the forces that are involved in the microvasculature and alveolar interfaces, um, non-invasive ventilation can be a very good temporizing measure to recruit areas of the lung, um, which again may be collapsed and uh, contributing to your VQ mismatch. Um, it may also help with that LV afterload reduction and decrease any um, component of, uh, of congestive heart failure that may be contributing to your uh, pulmonary decline. There's also the consideration of patients who have restrictive or obstructive physiology. Uh, patients with bad scoliosis, patients with chest wall restrictions from burns, um, who may simply not be able to inflate their lungs enough, and you would want to actually consider non-invasive both short 
and long-term for those types of patients. Any disorder where they may actually have increased work of breathing, non-invasive ventilation may be a good adjuvant. Um, you can actually consider for those cases that CPAP may not be sufficient, and in fact actually what you want to do is BiPAP, where you're actually opening the lung and recruiting it as you would with a translaryngeal ventilator. Indications, hypoventilation. Hypoventilation, my second category of indications, um, can again be acute or chronic and may coincide with the other processes going on. Um, you need to look at someone who has an altered hypercapnic drive or an altered hypoxemic drive, um, either due to medications uh, or an acute process um, centrally. So our patients who have received opiates coming out of the operating room or during a procedure um, or um, around a trauma and treatment uh, may have a little bit of hypercapnic uh, um, drive depression and that non-invasive ventilation may be a, a bridge to allow that to wear off and support them in the interim. Um, patients with neuromuscular disorders um, who simply do not have the uh, neuromuscular sufficiency uh, and mechanics to support their ventilation either short-term or long-term, Guillain-Barre in the short-term, spinal muscular atrophy or muscular dystrophy in the long-term, um, may need some support. In those instances, again, I would typically recommend BiPAP, so a biphasic support, where you're in fact actually helping them clear their carbon dioxide. Um, and then we also, um, for patients who are hypoventilated, um, it can be in patients who have meningitis or some other sort of acute process where um, they really don't have the central drive um, or maybe they've had some sort of inhalational um, process where they simply cannot clear enough CO2. We typically would caution people, and I'll talk about this, um, about if you're hypoventilating, are you in fact actually protecting your airway? And that is definitely a consideration before uh, implementing non-invasive ventilation or if you're going to maintain it for long periods of time. Indications, upper airway obstruction. My last category of indications is really upper airway obstruction, and again, this may go along with uh, the other um, types of uh, problems that you encounter. Obstructive sleep apnea on a chronic, um, on a chronic uh, um, perspective is actually the number one use, uh, at least in the United States and much of Western Europe, um, for use in, at home. We do see obstructive sleep apneas in the hospital, uh, in the acute setting, but really what we're also looking at is someone who may have an altered mental status, um, upper airway edema, um, other types of things that are contributing to an upper airway obstruction. Um, and non-invasive ventilation may be helpful to overcome that. Um, oftentimes you can simply use CPAP, so a continuous positive airway pressure, to distend the retropharynx, perhaps um, decrease some of the work of breathing and triggering that the patient may have, um, and really just uh, sort of help them keep their upper airways open and allow them to ventilate spontaneously. Um, if you find this is insufficient, then you may need to then escalate to a BiPAP or biphasic mode. Indications. American College of Chest Physicians Recommendations. Now, the American College of Chest Physicians, uh, over 10 years ago now, uh, put forth a set of recommendations um, for use of non-invasive ventilation in pediatrics. Um, I would say use these with caution. They are, in fact, 
guidelines and recommendations, and you need to take each of their points in consideration. Now, the clinical criteria are relatively straightforward. Someone with a weak cough, um, again, a patient with neuromuscular disorders, patient who's slightly sedated, a patient with altered mental status, that you really want to um, assist them in secretion clearance. Um, someone with retained airway secretions, a patient with cystic fibrosis, where you're using non-invasive ventilation to keep their airways open and facilitate their secretion clearance and perhaps uh, you know, decrease their risk of pneumonias or help them recover from a pneumonia. Anyone with an increased use of accessory muscle use, uh, this could be an asthmatic. This could be someone with an acute pneumonia. Um, it could be someone with uh, smoke inhalation who you uh, are sure that their upper airway is safe. Um, the CPAP will and BiPAP will actually decrease their inspiratory workload, uh, which can be quite helpful. And in the long term, if you're looking at non-invasive ventilation, looking at decreased caloric use, um, that this is obviously crucial in recovery from acute and chronic illness. The two um, concerns, however, I have with these recommendations are really the incompetent swallowing or weaker absent gag reflex. These are actually included as indications, but I think you should approach these with caution. Um, any non-invasive ventilation, so ventilation applied through a non-invasive interface, if you are unable to swallow or gag and protect your airway, you're at risk of significant aspiration. Um, if you can imagine if someone has a full stomach they vomit into the mask or have a lot of upper airway secretions and we're applying a mask over their face and forcing air in, some of that may actually go into the lungs if they're not able to have in, intact uh, cranial nerve uh, airway reflexes. So this is definitely a concern. I think it is helpful um, if you are in an area where you can't place a translaryngeal airway um, or this is a temporizing measure or if in fact actually you've chosen a direction of care where endotracheal intubation or tracheostomy are not an option or desirable. Um, so those are definitely considerations as you move ahead and consider uh, non-invasive ventilation. The physiologic criteria that the, um, the American College of Chest Physicians put forth are actually quite broad. Now the first two, the vital capacity of less than 15 mLs per kilo, or inspiratory force of less than 20 centimeters of water uh, on a negative inspiratory force measure. Um, those are actually quite low, and as you can imagine, we have a fair number of patients that we would follow closely if they're deteriorating and they don't have those pulmonary mechanics, um, and that would clearly be an indication for certainly BiPAP, that these are patients who are not going to be able to ventilate and clear enough CO2. Uh, a patient with Guillain-Barre who you're following these tests, you know, uh, every four to six hours to see what their progression is. Um, a patient with a chronic neuromuscular disorder that you're following over years to look and see what is their function in the, in the progress. Um, or a patient you're extubating from the um, operating room or from a procedural sedation. Can they generate a negative inspiratory force that would allow you to remove them from positive pressure ventilation? The other criteria are actually quite broad. Um, a PaCO2 greater than 40 millimeters of mercury, or a PaO2 of less than 70 millimeters of mercury, or an oxygen saturation of less than 97% on room air. Now, I think those are quite broad, but what it does is it reinforces the concept that oxygen by itself is not likely to be sufficient for someone who's got underlying lung disease or underlying neuromuscular disease with ventilator assistance. So any perturbation in your gas exchange may support the use of non-invasive ventilation. 
Contraindications there are some clear contraindications to non-invasive ventilation, which definitely um, are worth considering. Patients with severe craniofacial anomalies, um, Cruzans, Aperts, children with Down syndrome, um, some of these can actually be technically difficult, um, but with the newer adaptations in interfaces, we're actually being able to use them in, in many patient populations of all different sizes, uh, from the neonate to the adult to patients with unusual uh, facies. Um, but clearly, a patient with facial trauma, either post-surgical or an immediate uh, post-trauma, be it car accident or um, you know, blunt injury to the face, uh, is, is a clear contraindication. Uh, first of all, you worry about um, the mid-face instability and that you may actually cause more damage. Um, there's also the potential for pneumocephaly if, in fact, this is a post-traumatic injury. Um, and uh, this would be a clear contraindication. Um, someone with marked bulbar impairment, as we talked about, if you cannot protect your airway, uh, non-invasive ventilation is a relative contraindication, um, at least warrants discussion with the patient or their family, and certainly um, amongst, uh, amongst your colleagues uh, in terms of things to anticipate. Profuse secretions um, is a, definitely is an indication, but also can be a cautionary um, <clears throat> tale. Um, if it's lower airway secretions, the non-invasive ventilation may assist you in opening up the lungs and mobilizing these secretions. If there are a lot of upper airway secretions, um, this may actually impair your ability to implement the non-invasive ventilation. That if you are constantly taking the mask on and off simply to suction and clear the oropharynx or nasopharynx, um, this decreases the efficacy of the non-invasive ventilation, but also um, may make it uh, untenable for the patient. Um, the inability to cooperate is definitely a concern um, and is a relative contraindication. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a pediatric patient or an adult patient. Um, some people just cannot tolerate the, the interface on their face. Um, at times, we will use very low-dose sedation to get people to customize and adapt to these um, types of support. But we also will, um, depending on the type of ventilator and um, the BiPAP machine, there are ramp functions which can be helpful. Where in fact, actually, you start at a very low level and the machine has a preset where it will slowly bring you up to the specified uh, degree of support, which in uh, patients who are relatively stable may help them uh, adapt in the short term. If you have someone who's acutely ill, this may not be sufficient as they're rapidly deteriorating. And then theoretically, you can actually have if it makes someone worse, and that would be an indication for transitioning to a translaryngeal airway or other uh, modalities of support. There are also concerns in terms of relative contraindications to the safety of implementation. You need to have people who are uh, accustomed to setting these up. Uh, you need to have the capacity to monitor patients um, and then also watch their trajectory. Um, as I alluded to, there are no good uh, studies or criteria to say when is non-invasive support insufficient and when are you likely to have pending respiratory failure that would necessitate a translaryngeal airway. Uh, this is something that we're continuing to learn and, and have significant concerns um, about uh, you know, how to move forward with this. I would recommend in general having someone on an oximeter and standard cardiovascular monitoring with respiratory rate, heart rate, and uh, blood pressures. Um, 
pa putting a pediatric patient on non-invasive uh, support and walking uh, away and not having monitoring in place um, is certainly a concern and not recommended. So hopefully um, I've reviewed the basic concepts of uh, non-invasive ventilator support. So positive pressure ventilation with a non-invasive interface, non-invasive ventilation. Discuss the indications and recommendations for its use. So it's been a pleasure. And again, um, I look forward to speaking to you in the future. And we are available uh, as a resource as you move forward uh, with your critical care. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.